Hello and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast, Episode 10, Discord. So last time we discussed the birth of Islam and the beginning stages of the stunning Muslim conquest under the first two caliphs, Abu Bakr and Umar. These conquests were truly astounding. From being a peoples on the fringes of the world, barely thought of or considered at all by the superpowers of the day, the Arabs had exploded out of their homeland and inflicted crushing defeats on two of the greatest Eurasian civilizations of their day, the Byzantine Empire and the Sassanid dynasty, completely destroying one of them. Even the Arabs themselves were shocked. They had begun the assault not intending to topple empires, but instead to improve their position with them. But the Roman and Persian states were so weakened and exhausted that when placed under pressure, they simply crumbled. These stunning victories seemed to prove the correctness of the messenger's new faith. Why else would God have allowed this? How else could this have been accomplished? But we also discussed the growing tensions within the Muslim state, between Aisha, the Prophet's favorite wife, the mother of the faithful, and Ali, the Prophet's son-in-law and most trusted friend, the philosopher prince, between the old Meccan elite, most importantly the Umayyads and the original converts, the Muhajirun and the Ansari between those Arabs who stayed behind in the original homeland of Arabia and those who traveled to the new rich lands of conquest, and between the rich and the poor, as always. So this was the situation when Uthman succeeded the murdered Umar as caliph. He inherited a state that was supremely rich and powerful, but was internally divided. There were a great many questions about what to do. How do we continue the conquest, which are so unbelievable that they are clearly ordained by God? What do we do with the proceeds of these conquests? How do we deal with the peoples we have conquered? What is the legacy of Muhammad, and how do we reconcile his mandate to live simply and forsake materialism with the stunning material wealth that we now have? Uthman, however, was just not up to the job. As we discussed at the end of last episode, he was an elderly man who had been appointed almost as a stopgap a placeholder, so that Aisha and Ali could try to muster the support necessary to win the next time. But instead of acting as a placeholder, Uthman would instead act as an accelerant, ultimately causing the first fitna. Fitna, like many Arabic words, has multiple meanings and layers. In the broadest sense, it means discord. But it can also mean temptation, trial, civil war, and sedition. It is the name that would be given to the coming conflicts, the coming civil wars within the victorious camp of Islam, the first spilling of Muslim blood by Muslims. And it was under Uthman that Fitna would enter the Muslim world. Uthman as an Umayyad was a member of the old aristocracy that had opposed Muhammad. But whereas almost all of his clan had opposed Muhammad's teachings from the beginning, Uthman had been one of the very first to embrace the new faith. Yet he had never fought in a battle, and unlike Umar, he had not abandoned the love of riches when he converted to the messenger's new religion. Now his piety and belief are beyond doubt. Indeed, probably the most meaningful act of Uthman's reign was that it was he who ordered the compilation and recording of the Quran. Until now, Muhammad's revelations had either been recorded in memory by the Hafiz, who memorized the whole thing, or in piecemeal writings. Uthman wanted to preserve forever the whole thing, so that it would be fixed and never forgotten. But while no one could doubt Uthman's piety, he had never lost his allegiance to his old Umayyad clan. And under his reign, 
Umayyad power extended even further. Muhammad had deposed the old Meccan elite, and after defeating them on the field of battle, he had forced them into a subordinate position. His new faith had railed against their materialism, their luxury, and their decadence. But since the messenger's death, the old elite had slowly rebuilt its old power, and under Uthman, the old Meccan aristocracy came back with a vengeance and completed its reassertion of power after Muhammad's revolution had displaced them. Essentially, all offices went to the Umayyads, along with all of the rich lands in Mesopotamia conquered from the Sassanids, as well as the lands that they had already held in Syria. As part of this, the simplicity, the asceticism, the self-denial of Abu Bakr and Umar went out the door. Abu Bakr and Umar had each lived in a simple mud hut, even as caliph, just as the messenger had. Umar had directed the unimaginable riches of the conquest not to himself or his rich family members, but he had distributed them among the Ummah. No longer. Under Uthman, corruption and graft flourished, and the caliph's court became incomparably wealthy. Conspicuous consumption was the order of the day. Where his predecessors had lived in humble mud huts, Uthman constructed a luxurious palace for himself in Medina. Vast estates of the conquered lands were distributed to the wealthy elites, most especially the Umayyads. The old splendor of the old elite returned, now financed and multiplied a thousandfold by the vast riches supplied by the stunning Arab conquests. This, of course, caused intense resentment among everyone who was not an Umayyad. Even Aisha was fed up with Uthman and the corruption of his court, and was forced onto the same side as her nemesis Ali. Losing the support of the mother of the faithful would turn out to be a crippling loss to Uthman, when, in late 655, just over a year into his reign, the tensions roiling the new Muslim community boiled over. The spark that lit the fuse was the behavior of one of the rapacious Umayyad governors sent to Iraq, in this case to Kufa, the new garrison city established by the Arabs. The governor, Walid, was Uthman's half-brother and was not only corrupt and cruel, but personally impious. He had none of the true believer's sense of self-denial and asceticism. Instead, he decked himself out in finery and lived in a palace. And then one day, he showed up to a mosque in Kufa just absolutely hammered drunk. Just drunk out of his mind. Now, Muhammad had, of course, prohibited drinking alcohol, which was a favored pastime of the old Meccan elite, who would routinely get drunk at elaborate feasts. And here was Walid, the governor, an Umayyad of the highest rank, the caliph's half-brother even, yet he had shown himself to be nothing but one of the old decadent elite back at their old ways, flagrantly disobeying the prophet in a mosque of all places. And that was it for the Kufans. Furious, they sent an embassy to Medina, demanding that Uthman remove Walid and that he be publicly flogged. But Uthman, with the disdain of a patrician for the plebeians, rejected the demand of these Iraqi provincials. He refused to even hear their complaint. So the Kufan messengers went to Aisha, appealing to the mother of the faithful to take their side. Uthman was incredulous and reportedly sneered can the rebels and scoundrels of Iraq find no other refuge than the home of Aisha? Tensions quickly grew, and when a respected Ansari elder, 
one who had been with Muhammad long before the conversion of these Umayyad aristocrats, stood up in the mosque in Medina after Friday prayers to speak on behalf of the Iraqi messengers, Uthman had him arrested and thrown out of the mosque so violently that his ribs were broken. On the next Friday, Aisha then strode into the mosque and castigated Uthman in public, reportedly brandishing a sandal of Muhammad's. The people of Medina rallied behind Aisha, taking off their own sandals to brandish at Uthman. So Uthman now faced a revolt. He realized he had no choice and that he had to recall his half-brother, the governor Walid. But he dragged his feet and refused to order his half-brother flogged. But as often happens, events had moved past him. Maybe just recalling Walid would have been enough earlier, but not now. Urged on by Aisha, letters poured into Medina from the provinces, including from the military encampments in garrison cities, Kufa and Basra in Iraq, Fustat in Egypt. And these letters were followed by columns of soldiers, contingents of the military, normally busy with the work of expanding the faith at the edges of the new empire, were returning home to the center. What had started with the resentment of the poor and the discontent, the bitterness of the poor and provincial riffraff of Iraq, had expanded out of all control. The revolt had drawn in leaders among the Ummah, and now had drawn in the military, including Abu Bakr's son, the general, Muhammad ibn Abu Bakr, who had been adopted by Ali and raised in Ali's household. These military contingents entered Medina and put Uthman under siege in his new royal palace. Now this revolt put Ali in a tricky position. He was an enemy of both Aisha and Uthman. He was completely opposed to what Uthman had done in his reign, and looked at the return of the old Meccan elite with horror. Think about this from his perspective. I mean, some of these guys had even tried to have Ali killed when the faith was young when he was among one of the first Muslims, and they and their kind were their rich and wealthy pagan oppressors. But above all, Ali desperately wanted to avoid bloodshed. For two weeks, Ali attempted to mediate. But bloodshed was by now unavoidable. Despite Ali's best efforts, tensions continued to rise. After a particularly violent incident at the mosque, Uthman signaled that he was ready to give in to the demands of the rebels. He publicly said that he would recall the hated corrupt governors in Egypt and Iraq and reform the state. But then, the rebel military commanders detained a disguised messenger of the caliph and found hidden on his person a secret letter. The secret letter contained an order to the military governor of Egypt, in which Uthman, contrary to what he had said publicly, instructed him to send troops to Medina and to arrest the rebels and torture them to death. This was the final straw. There was no trusting the caliph. Clearly, he was trying to call an aid from his loyal, corrupt Umayyad governors and kill them all. And if these corrupt governors marched on Medina, that would be it. So the rebels, led by Muhammad ibn Abu Bakr and the military men, broke into the palace in June 656 to assassinate the caliph. Uthman was found seated reading the Quran, the compilation of which had been accomplished under his rule. Muhammad ibn Abu Bakr struck first, following which the knife-wielding rebels fell on the undefended caliph, stabbing him to death. His blood spilled across the room, covering his clothes, the rich carpets, and even the holy Quran. This was the first shedding of Muslim blood by Muslims, the beginning of the fitna but it would not be the end. 
There was no public mourning of Uthman in Medina. Unlike Mecca, Medina was not quite an Umayyad stronghold. The capital, where Muhammad had fled, was full of Muhajirun and Ansari. The throngs of Medina embraced Ali, and following Uthman's death, they rushed into the streets and into the Grand Mosque, shouting that they would have none but Ali. In June 656, Ali, finally, after over a decade of waiting, became the Caliph. What he had called his years of dust and thorns were over. But Ali refused the title Caliph. He instead called himself the Imam, meaning he who stands in front. It was a modest title, given to the person who led the daily prayers. This was a sign of his intent to return to the modesty preceding Uthman. He also insisted on reconciliation, that the shedding of Muslim blood by Muslims end, and refused to punish Uthman's assassins for this reason, though I actually doubt he could have punished these people, given that they were his supporters and had in effect put him on the throne. His own adopted son, who he had loved as his own child, raised in his own family, Muhammad ibn Abu Bakr had been one of the key leaders of the revolt and the first to strike Uthman. Ali instead said, I cannot say if Uthman was killed justly or unjustly, for he himself was unjust, which really is going just up to the line of calling him an apostate. In Mecca, stronghold of the Umayyads, Aisha was having none of this. She had had her feud with Uthman to be sure and had played a critical part in his fall but she would never accept Ali as the leader of the Ummah. She herself was by birth a member of the old Meccan elite and had family ties to the Umayyads. Aisha knew that ultimately, the only way to defeat Ali was with Umayyad help and with the help of her old Meccan elite relatives and their kind. So she reached out to the Umayyads and cut a deal with them to oppose Ali. She latched onto Ali's refusal to punish Uthman's assassins and basically said, Look, I had my problems with Uthman, but Ali is suborning treason by allowing these people to get away with this. So Aisha assembled an army in Mecca with the financial backing of the Umayyads. Then, at the head of this army, she marched towards Basra, like Kufa, a garrison city in southern Iraq founded by Umar, where she hoped to gather more support. But Aisha and the Umayyads had miscalculated. Ali had already replaced the corrupt Umayyad governor installed by Uthman, and the garrison refused to take a side. And so far from what Aisha and her Umayyad backers had assumed, the common Arab soldiers in Iraq were actually on Ali's side. Aisha was therefore left on her own, with a relatively small Meccan army. When news reached Ali in Medina, he assembled his own army and marched toward Basra to head off this threat. He could not have known it, but he would never again enter Medina. Outside of Basra, three days of tense negotiations followed, but Ali was unable to break the deadlock, unable to convince Aisha to turn back. Aisha was determined to fight. So she mounted her war camel, enshrouded in a covered howdah made of chain mail, as befitted the modesty of a wife of the Prophet the mother of the faithful. It was this camel that came to give the battle its name, the Battle of the Camel, the first great battle of the first fitna. But Aisha's forces proved to be no match for Ali's army. Her brothers-in-law fell in battle, and her forces were quickly defeated. But Aisha herself refused to leave the battlefield. 
Say what you want about her, but she was no coward. She all but dared Ali to kill her, knowing how this would tarnish his reputation. Ali kept ordering waves and waves of attacks on the camel, sending volleys of arrows against the chainmail Hauda. Finally, the camel itself was hamstrung and cut down, bellowing in pain and fear. As it died, Ali's men rushed forward and pulled down the howdah off the dying camel with Aisha still inside. Ali slowly approached the howdah and ordered that its chainmail curtains be opened. Inside sat Aisha, pierced in the arm by an arrow. Aisha did not cry as it was removed. She was determined to keep her pride to the end. She congratulated Ali on his victory, no doubt expecting to be executed. Ali instead pardoned her, saying, O mother of the faithful, may Allah forgive you. After she had healed in Basra, Ali sent her back to Medina under armed guard to ensure that she would no longer interfere with affairs of state. Aisha accepted her fate, though she hated it, and retired to Medina. Until the end of her life, she kept repeating, O God, had I but died two decades before that day. But the defeat of Aisha did not mean the defeat of her Umayyad backers. The Battle of the Camel was not the end of the first fitna, but instead its beginning. Having defeated Aisha, Ali now moved to bring the old Meccan elite to heel, to break Umayyad power. He commanded all of the Umayyad provincial governors to return to Medina, and intended to appoint new ones loyal to him. Most importantly, his adopted son Muhammad ibn Abu Bakr, son of the first caliph, who had led the revolt against Uthman, was appointed as governor of the rich province of Egypt. Ali himself stayed in Iraq. These newly conquered lands were full of his supporters, the downtrodden, the common soldiers, the provincials, whereas Mecca was a stronghold of the Umayyads, and Medina was far too near to it for now. All of the governors except for one heeded Ali's call. The lone holdout was Muawiyah, the immensely powerful Umayyad governor of Syria, the man who would establish the coming Umayyad Caliphate. Muawiyah ibn Abu Sufyan was a blue-blooded scion of a powerful Meccan family, the elite of the elite of the Quraysh, one of the Umayyads. His family had been among the greatest opponents of Muhammad. His father had remained defiant, opposing all of Muhammad's teachings from the moment he first heard them, while his mother was an even more vicious and voracious foe of the messenger, who had not only joined the warriors of the Quraysh in battle to oppose the new faith, but had even eaten the raw heart of a mutilated Muslim general after he was killed in one of the Ummah's early defeats at the hands of the Quraysh. Muawiyah's family had converted to Islam only after Muhammad had conquered Mecca and the war was lost. Muhammad brought Muawiyah close to him, employing him as a scribe as a demonstration of reconciliation, to show the world that the time of conflict was over, that he could mend fences even with this person. But Muawiyah was a man of great intelligence and great skill, cunning, hardworking, and utterly ruthless. He also had the wealth and the prestige of his family to rely on, and, as the old Meccan elite were assimilated into the new order after Muhammad's revolution, Muawiyah rose. As we briefly mentioned last episode, he was appointed by Umar to be governor of Syria shortly after the Battle of Yarmouk. In many ways, he embodied the rise of the Umayyads as a whole, 
the former enemies of Islam taking over the government as the new faith's empire expanded, directing the proceeds of its conquest to themselves. After his relative Uthman became caliph, Muawiyah's influence continued to rise. He built a gorgeous palace in Syria, ruling in Umayyad luxury. Yet Muawiyah was more than just a decadent rich kid. For one thing, he and the other Umayyads respected and loved the Persian and Greek and Roman and Christian cultures that they found in the lands that they conquered. And they sponsored and patronized the beginnings of what would become a fusion of all of these cultures, melding it with Islam to become a new cosmopolitan Islamic culture. And yes, Muawiyah appreciated luxury and these finer things in life, but he was also a genius administrator, a workaholic with a cunning, Machiavellian mind. He was one of those political animals, people with an innate sense of what is possible and what is not possible in the political world, who know how to convince and manipulate other people in order to achieve their own goals. Muawiyah famously said, If there is but one hair binding someone to me, I do not let it break. If he pulls, I loosen. If he loosens, I pull. In the nearly 20 years after the Battle of Yarmouk, Muawiyah had embedded himself in Syria, turning the entire region, stretching from the Levant up into what is now southern Turkey, into his personal fiefdom. This was one of the richest regions in the world, and as governor, he was now its virtual king. When he heard of Uthman's death, Muawiyah recognized that war was inevitable, and he recognized that his family, and all of the old Meccan elite were at war with Ali and his supporters, no matter what Ali might have said or thought about reconciliation and putting an end to the bloodshed. This was war. And so Muawiyah refused to come to Medina. Instead, Uthman's bloody robes were delivered to Muawiyah, and he ordered that they be displayed in the great, brand new mosque of Damascus, so that the whole world could see the violence done by Ali's supporters to the caliph. Now, Ali, of course, knew that he could not allow a governor to defy him. If he were to do so, his authority would be fatally undermined. Furthermore, leaving the Umayyads in control of such a rich and powerful portion of the caliphate would be a disaster. So he marched out of Basra north to Kufa, the other great garrison city of the Arabs in Mesopotamia, which was also nearer to Syria. Kufa would be his de facto capital for the remainder of his rule though he refused to lodge in the luxurious Umayyad-built palace on the Euphrates, instead sleeping in a humble mud hut near the mosque, as had Muhammad, Abu Bakr, and Umar. Ali hoped to put pressure on Muawiyah and resolve the situation without further bloodshed. Above all, Ali hated civil war, hated division, hated bloodshed. But Muawiyah had no interest in such a resolution. He stirred up popular resentment against Ali in Syria, and then, using this as a pretext, declared war on Ali by sending him a letter accusing him of killing Uthman and claiming that he was not a rightful caliph because he had not been proclaimed by a shorter council but merely had been proclaimed as caliph by the mobs of Medina after a coup led by his adopted son. So it was war. Ali had no choice but to try to defeat Muawiyah and the Umayyads in the field. In 657, the two armies, one Iraqi led by Ali, one Syrian led by Muawiyah, met on the plain of Sifin in northern Syria. Still, Ali attempted to find a peaceful solution, and his envoys met with Muawiyah to try to come to a solution. Muawiyah, 
Knowing how much Ali hated civil war and wanted to stop this killing of Muslims by Muslims played hardball. He offered to withdraw if Ali would resign and then divide the empire. But Ali rejected these conditions, and so the battle began. It was fierce, with great death on both sides, lasting for three days. By the morning of the third day, it was clear that Ali and the Iraqis would be victorious. But Muawiyah was not going to accept defeat, and so he very cleverly played on the piety of Ali's troops and on Ali's own desire for peace. He had his troops attach copies of the Quran to their spears and then advance towards the Iraqi troops. The fighting stopped instantly. What pious Muslim could attack the word of God? Muawiyah then sent forth his Syrian cavalry with a proposition. Let there be an arbitration. Each side would send their most pious member as a delegate, and they would debate based solely on the words of the Holy Quran. Allah would decide. Muawiyah, knowing the piety of his enemy's soldiers, carefully crafted his message, wrapping his proposal in the words of the Quran and the language of faith. Ali couldn't believe it. He didn't believe it. He tried to cajole his men, telling them, We're on the verge of victory here. One more day of fighting and this will all be over. He knew that submitting to arbitration would weaken his own claim and set a horrible, horrible precedent. The role of caliph, the role of imam, as Ali saw it, the leader of the faithful, was one of divine right, not something to be negotiated and haggled over. He went in front of his troops, telling them that this was a ruse, a trick by the cunning Muawiyah. But his men, his pious Iraqi troops, weren't having it. They had just spent two days fighting and killing their brothers, their co-religionists, and now here was a chance to end the struggle without further death, and all in accordance with God's will, according to the words of Muawiyah and his messengers. So they refused to fight further, and so Ali's hand was forced. He had no choice but to agree and leave the field, just as victory was in his grasp. As they marched back to Kufa, Ali's Iraqi troops realized what they had done, and they blamed Ali for allowing them to do it. As the leader of these mutinous troops said, When we wanted arbitration, we sinned and became unbelievers, but we have repented. If you now do the same, we will be with you, but if you will not, then as the Quran says, we reject you without distinction, for God does not love the treacherous. Ali's position was therefore fatally weakened, as Muawiyah knew it would be. By the very act of agreeing to arbitrate, Ali was losing. And now he couldn't go back on his word, sworn on the Quran. Even if he wanted to, his troops themselves were now divided between those who continued to support arbitration and those who had withdrawn their support. Those among his troops who could not, would not accept the decision to arbitrate, which they themselves had forced on Ali, became the Kharijites, or the Rejectionists, and they broke with Ali permanently. In time, their descendants would form the Ibadi sect of Islam, now practiced virtually only in Oman and in a handful of communities scattered across the Arab world. The two sides met again in Syria almost a year later for the promised arbitration on the plains of Sifin in 658. In the intervening year, Ali's authority had continued to erode as a Kharijite rebellion began to unfold. In the arbitration, Ali sent as his delegate Abu Musa, a devout man but probably not the sharpest tool in the shed. 
Ali had wanted to send his most cunning general, but his men had insisted on Abu Musa. Had they not agreed with Muawiyah that this would be a holy conclave of the most devout man from each side? Now Muawiyah, of course, made no such mistake. He sent his top general, Amr, a completely ruthless and intelligent man who seems to have been completely uninterested in religion. The two sat in debate for two weeks and came up with a solution, whereupon Amr ran circles around Abu Musa. They came to agree that a shura would be called to confirm Ali as caliph and Muawiyah as governor in Syria. But then, when announcing it to the gathered men, Amr double-crossed Abu Musa and Ali. He announced that they had in fact agreed to declare Muawiyah as caliph. Total chaos erupted as Abu Musa denied this. But the damage was done. There were now two caliphs. Muawiyah now had the stamp of approval that he needed. Unlike Ali, Muawiyah knew that he didn't actually need the arbitration to produce a winning outcome. He just needed it to produce a claim. Something he could shop around to the power brokers in this new Arab empire to get them to come over to his side. So he took this supposed declaration and dashed off emissaries to the elites, to the governors, to the military commanders, to everyone who mattered across the new Arab empire. He promised riches, power, glory, whatever they wanted, if they would support his claim. But he also sent out deployments of troops and assassins wielding poison knives with instructions to make sure his claim was accepted. In all of this, Muawiyah of course had the aid of the old Meccan elite. And Muawiyah, that great Machiavellian politician, was successful. Most importantly, he and his men were able to flip the armies of Egypt, and Muhammad ibn Abu Bakr, Ali's adopted son and the man who had killed Uthman, who had been appointed governor of Egypt, was captured and tortured to death. In a stroke, Muawiyah had taken Egypt to North Africa two of the richest provinces of this new empire. Ali was now cornered, stuck in Iraq and facing a revolt of his own troops. Soon, Arabia itself fell to Muawiyah, again through a mixture of bribery, poison, and small-scale war, all with the aid of the old elite, elated that they were now back in control again. All of Ali's loyalists in Mecca and Medina were captured and executed. The walls were closing in around Ali, when, in 661, he was assassinated by a Kharijite fanatic in the mosque of Kufa. In time, the party of Ali, the Shi'at Ali, would become its own religious sect, and the death of Ali ibn Abu Talib would become one of its greatest tragedies. The philosopher prince, the noble general who hated war, the man who embraced the poor and forsook wealth, ensnared and destroyed by the shrewd and cunning worldly man of luxury. This tale would become part of the Shia narrative of the injustice of the material world and the salvation of the spiritual world, promised to those who endured these trials and these tribulations. Ali was succeeded by his son Hassan, but Muawiyah, upon learning of the death of Ali, marched into Iraq and deposed Hassan. Hassan abdicated and was sent with a pension to live in exile in Mecca with his younger brother, Hussein. Muawiyah was far too clever to openly kill the sons of Ali and make martyrs of them. Hassan would die in 670, either from illness or after being poisoned on Muawiyah's orders. 
though the evidence isn't clear, for sure Muawiyah wouldn't have blinked at ordering this if he thought it was necessary, or if he thought he could get away with it. So the first fitna was over. But the fact that we call it the first fitna should be a clue that this conflict wasn't over for good. Muawiyah had won, and had established a new state, the Umayyad Caliphate. Muawiyah would reign for almost 20 years as caliph, during which time his genius for administration would firmly establish the structures of government of the new Islamic caliphate. Structures of government that would far, far outlive the state that he established, and would continue in some form all the way down through the Ottoman dynasty. It is under Muawiyah's rule that we really see the establishment of the structures of the caliphate's state structures that would inform all Islamic states going forward. Essentially, the caliphate took over the institutions of the preceding Roman and Persian administrations in the areas that they conquered. The existing institutions largely continued running, but with new management on top. For example, until the 650s we see continued minting of Byzantine coins in Syria, later replaced by Arab coinage of roughly the same type, but with new faces and inscriptions. Likely, the local Greeks and other former Byzantine subjects living in the Middle East did not quickly realize how permanent the new order would be. There are a lot of sources that seem to speak of the occupation of the Arabs as a temporary phenomenon, and the conquered peoples were only disabused of this notion very slowly. This was helped along by the Arab practice of creating new cities, like Fustat, Basra, and Kufa, where the Arab garrisons sat. They were therefore removed from the day-to-day -day life of their conquered vassals, for whom life basically continued like it always had, except that there was now a new local ruler and perhaps a new mosque and palace in the largest cities. The biggest change, at least initially, was the imposition of taxes to pay the Arab garrisons and the granting of estates of nobles who had fled, which estates were given to the new Arab nobility. The Arab soldiers would be paid a salary from the imposition of these taxes, and Arab colonies began to be built, beginning with the garrison cities and then extending to other settlements. And by and large, the estates of the Byzantine and Persian nobility who remained in place were left alone, with likely only minor confiscations of land. Indeed, many of the Sassanid nobles had in fact defected to the Muslims, and some of them likely even came out ahead and acquired new estates from the lands of those who had fled. So overall, life in the formerly Byzantine and Sassanid lands went on as it had before for most people. If anything, it improved as peace came to the Middle East for the first time in millennia, and the economic boom brought about by the dismantling of trade barriers in the region took off. Muawiyah, however, worked to establish a state that rested atop these pre-existing local structures. Key to this was his establishment of the Diwans, or Councils of State, which in Turkish is Divan. He took this from the model established by Umar, but expanded it. Each council would oversee one of the various aspects of the state government, kind of like modern ministries. There was, for example, a Diwan of land taxes, in charge of overseeing the taxation of the conquered people a Diwan in charge of the postal service, one for record-keeping, one for state property, and so on. Aside from these central diwans, branches of the diwans for taxation and correspondence were established in each of the conquered territories, which were then divided into new provinces. These were clearly based on existing Byzantine and Persian bureaucratic models and slotted in easily over the existing state structures. 
the Diwan or Divan in Turkish, became the foundational institution of Islamic state structure for centuries, really until the administrative reforms in the Ottoman Empire in the modern period that we're going to get to in, I don't know, about 500 episodes or so at the rate that I'm going. And this really is one of Muawiyah's biggest and most important, longest-lasting achievements. You know, Muawiyah is a very detested figure in Islamic histories. Obviously, the Shia despise him for killing Ali, but Sunni sources don't really like him either. But that said, it's hard not to say that he clearly laid down the foundations of Islamic state structure that would last for centuries. Personnel-wise, Muawiyah of course purged anyone who was loyal to Ali and installed Umayyads across the empire. These men were loyal to him, and this loyalty strengthened the central institutions of the state he had built. Critically for our story, he appointed a very cruel man named Ziad ibn Abihi to govern Iraq, the old heartland of Ali's support. Ziad and his family would become increasingly powerful, governing over a region where a firm hand was necessary to put down any Shia revolts. Ziad and his family became renowned for cruelty, and not only put down fledging revolts in Iraq with brutality, but came to rule Iraq as virtual tyrants. Ziad and in time his son Ubaidullah, who succeeded him, became infamous for their methods of execution of dissenters, including reverting to crucifixion, mutilation, and torture. Muawiyah's reign also marked the permanent shift in political gravity in the Islamic world away from the Arabian Peninsula, the birthplace of the faith. Arabia was just too remote from the rich and more cultured lands of Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Egypt. It would become a backwater, enriched only by the annual Hajj pilgrimage for centuries, only rising in importance again in the 20th century with the discovery of oil. Though the faith had been born in the deserts of Arabia, it came to fruition in the gardens, palaces, and cities of these conquered territories. These places would, in short time, become the true center of the lands of Islam. The old Meccan and Medinan elites either moved into these new conquered territories, joining into this newly emerging cosmopolitan Islamic culture, or they stayed behind in the Hejaz, which was quickly becoming a remote and provincial backwater. A place not of grand palaces and beautiful gardens, full of music and wine and women, but of remote and austere desert cities, full of simple cloistered buildings, closed against the baking heat of the desert. In foreign policy, Muawiyah was committed to further the expansion of the faith, or rather, the empire of the faith, because he still wasn't big on mass conversion, knowing that it would bankrupt the state. The most important of these wars was his invasion of the remaining territory of the Byzantine Empire, now confined to Anatolia and the Balkans. The Romans were able to hide behind the great walls of the Taurus Mountains, where they deployed their remaining legions to defend against the Arabs. The formerly mobile field legions were made stationary, fixed in place in districts called themes, from the Greek word themata, to place. There they would draw on the resources of the theme to supply themselves to withstand the Arab storm. Muawiyah not only launched raids deep into Anatolia, but built a fleet to ravage Byzantine shipping along the coast. As he built up his fleets and armies, he prepared for the impossible the conquest of Constantinople. In 674, under the command of his son Yazid, the great army and fleet came before the walls of the great city. The siege was to last four years, 
It failed in large part because the Romans were able to use the famous Greek fire, the sort of petrochemical fire that would burn on the water, to burn the Arab fleet in the swift waters of the Bosphorus. During the siege, the Prophet's companion Abu Ayyub al-Ansari would die in battle near the walls. Centuries later, this spot would become the place of the Ayyub Mosque, the holiest mosque in Ottoman Constantinople and the enthronement site of the Ottoman sultans. Muhammad had allegedly prophesied, Verily you shall conquer Constantinople. What a wonderful army will that army be, and what a wonderful commander will that conqueror be. But that wonderful commander was not to be Yazid or Muawiyah. Instead, the honor would fall to the Ottomans, almost 800 years later. But aside from this failure to conquer Constantinople, the armies of Islam continued to be wildly successful under Muawiyah's reign. Their conquests across North Africa continued, and modern-day Tunisia and parts of Algeria came into the Caliphate, as the armies of Islam either co-opted or defeated the local Berber peoples. The Umayyad troops may have raided across the Sahara as far as Niger as well. In Armenia and the Caucasus, the Arab forces advanced as far as Darbend, the city we last discussed in episode 5, when it was sacked by Bodhishat and the armies of the western Gökturk Khanate. There, they ran up against the Khazars, the Turkic peoples who, having broken off from the western Gökturk Khanate as it collapsed, had established a powerful Khanate north of the wild mountain range. And as we will discuss next time, tentative forays into Central Asia, the lands of the Sogdians and the Turks were also beginning. So across the board, Muawiyah's reign was looking up. He had centralized and systematized the state, building off pre-existing Roman and Sassanid models. The armies of Islam had covered themselves in glory and continued to bring more and more land and wealth and peoples under the rule of the Caliph, with the notable flaw of Constantinople, of course. Across the world, from Europe to India to China, everyone wondered at the strength and majesty of this new faith and its powerful ruler. Yet as he grew old, Muawiyah began to become concerned about the succession. He was determined to follow the models of Sassanid and Roman succession that he so admired. In contravention of all previous Islamic precedent, he aspired to build not just an empire of faith, but a royal dynasty. There could be only one successor to him, his own son, Yazid. This flew in the face of Islamic practice to date. Until now, the leader had either been elected, appointed, or, as in his own case, won the title through war. Muawiyah knew that he had to tread carefully. Though his body was failing, racked by gout and obesity from years of feasting and indulgence, his mind was as sharp as ever. After poisoning some potential rivals, in 675, Muawiyah announced that his son Yazid would succeed him and demanded loyalty oaths from leading figures across the caliphate. The news was shocking. How could this be the will of Allah? That the office of caliph, the leader of the faithful, the successor to the messenger, be turned into a hereditary possession, property of one family. And there were other candidates, most importantly Ali's second son. Hussein. Finally, Muawiyah died in 680, aged about 80 years old. He died peacefully in his bed. He was a brilliant, genius, cunning, ruthless, cruel, and utterly amoral piece of work. An extremely effective politician and a man of great skill, 
yet one of the most manipulative and sociopathic rulers in history. But even if he was personally reprehensible, you have to admit that he also strengthened the institutions of the state and laid the groundwork for the structures of government in the Muslim world. He expanded the wealth and the breadth of the caliphate. His admiration for Roman, Greek, and Persian culture and his sponsorship of the arts laid the groundwork for the coming cosmopolitan golden age of Islamic civilization. But he was also a cold-blooded murderer and a manipulative, scheming psychopath. He was, in short, a magnificent bastard. Upon Muawiyah's death, his son Yazid was acclaimed caliph. Yazid acted quickly to consolidate his position. Immediately, he ordered the arrest of his number one rival, Hussein. Now Hussein was living in Medina, but the governor of Medina balked at this. Hussein was the last living grandson of the messenger. Indeed, it was this status that had kept him safe for the long years of Muawiyah's rule. Even Muawiyah didn't want to execute Muhammad's grandson, you know, at least publicly. And Hussein was not a politician. He had devoted his life to scholarship after the assassination of his father and the death of his brother. This was a bridge too far, so Hussein was tipped off, probably by the governor of Medina himself, and fled to Mecca. There, he received urgent messengers from Kufa, his father Ali's old base, begging him to return and take up the caliphate. They were tired of Ubaidallah, the cruel governor appointed by Muawiyah, and who ruled Iraq with the same cruelty as his father. And so they placed their hopes in Ali's son, the grandson of the Prophet. So Hussein, despite having no military or political experience to speak of, rode out to Kufa to press his claim. But Ubaidallah had been informed of Hussein's journey and blocked all roads to Kufa. Hussein was informed of this while camped on the road to Kufa at Kadash, the site of the great Arab victory over the Persians, by a messenger of Ubaidullah who had been given instructions to arrest him. But the messenger balked at carrying out his orders. Even if he had opposed Hussein's claim, arresting the Prophet's family member and bringing him to Ubaidullah, who would surely kill him, was way too far. Hussein now knew that he could not press on to Kufa directly but also that he could not turn back. So he turned north, where, in the month of Muharram, he and his party were surrounded on the field of Karbala by a new army of 4,000 warriors sent by Ubaidallah. Ubaidallah was furious that his orders had been disobeyed, and so he sent his most ruthless general, Shimir, a man he knew would carry out his will. But these soldiers as well would have preferred not to kill the Prophet's family, so negotiations began. But they were unsuccessful. Finally, after several days, Ubaidullah's troops charged Hussein's small group, viciously beating them. In the melee, Hussein's infant son was shot with an arrow and killed in his father's hands. Shimir was now done negotiating. The time to finish the deed had come. Hussein now knew that there was no escape, and so he prepared to die with honor. The next day, the 10th of Muharram, Hussein anointed himself and his companions with oil, said goodbye to his family and companions, and rode out completely alone in a valiant and suicidal charge, intent on martyrdom and an honorable death. He was shot off his horse by an arrow, and he was then surrounded by Ubaidullah's troops, stabbed to death, and beheaded. The troops then rode their horses over Hussein's body, 
grinding the last of the messenger's grandsons into the field of Karbala. Thus died the last member of Muhammad's family who had known and lived with the messenger. Hussein's death would become the great tragedy of Shia Islam. Its anniversary, Ashura, the greatest holy day of mourning for the Shia. When Shimir delivered the head of Hussein to Ubaidullah on top of a lance, Ubaidullah could not contain his joy. He reportedly laughed with pleasure, even striking the decapitated head with his cane, until an elderly companion of Muhammad in his court, one of the last alive who had ever seen the messenger, screamed at him, How often have I seen the messenger kiss that face that you now desecrate? And this old man's reaction would, it turns out, be the reaction of most Muslims. The death of Hussein at Karbala and the mutilation of his corpse sent shockwaves around the Muslim world. Yazid and Ubaidullah had made a grave mistake, one that would begin the second fitna. Though only a minority of Muslims were completely on board with Ali and his family's claim to leadership by virtue of their descent from the Prophet, murdering and mutilating the Prophet's family was an outrage to virtually everyone. It was exactly for this reason that Muawiyah had not had Hussein killed earlier. Yazid's authority was completely undermined. What kind of a caliph would have his thugs do this to the messenger's family? The last of the messenger's family. Anger surged throughout the Muslim world, even among those who had opposed Ali's claims to the caliphate. And so, in Mecca, a widely respected leader named Abdullah ibn al-Zubayr decided to harness this anger and began recruiting supporters for a challenge against Yazid. Ibn al-Zubayr was a son of a leading companion of Muhammad, a member of the old Meccan elite who had nevertheless been among the earliest converts to Islam, brought into the new faith as its fifth member by Abu Bakr. Ibn al-Zubayr himself was born in Medina in 624 five years before Muhammad's triumphal conquest of Mecca. His father had married Abu Bakr's daughter, making Ibn al-Zabaydar a grandson of the first caliph. As a child, he joined his father as his father led the Arab armies of conquest, fighting at Yarmouk against the Romans and in Egypt. He himself became a respected military leader, leading the initial conquest in North Africa. He returned to Medina as a young man, where he was appointed by Uthman to lead the compilation of the Qur'an, collecting all of the verses and committing them to writing, organized into a single book. When Uthman was besieged in his palace, he appointed Ibn al-Zubayr to lead his bodyguard, and Ibn al-Zubayr was injured when the palace was breached and the caliph assassinated. As a grandson of Abu Bakr, he was a relative of Aisha, and he took her side in her dispute with Ali, and fought in the Battle of the Camel as one of Aisha's chief generals. After Aisha's defeat, he escorted her back to Medina. In 656, shortly after the Battle of the Camel, his father died, leaving to his son the vast riches he had gained in his long career as a general and a statesman. Ibn al-Zubayr accepted Muawiyah's victory over Ali, but retired from public life. That is, until Muawiyah attempted to make his son caliph. Ibn al-Zubayr completely and totally rejected the idea that the caliphate could become a piece of dynastic property, passed from father to son. In some ways, this was precisely the reason he and people like him had rejected Ali's claim. Succession to the messenger was not a matter of blood. It should be decided by the whole community and should go to the most worthy. 
Ibn al-Zubayr therefore maintained that without a shura appointing him, or victory on the battlefield demonstrating Allah's will, Yazid was not properly the caliph, and Yazid's conduct in the matter of Hussein demonstrated his unworthiness to hold the title. Ibn al-Zubayr was also dissatisfied with the Umayyad court in Damascus, both for its luxury, its seeming betrayal of the Prophet's commandments to live simply, and for its foreignness, the influence of Roman and Persian culture upon it. And these complaints were connected, both two sides of the same coin. It was the foreign influence that was undermining the simplicity and the purity of the messenger's faith. Ibn al-Zubayr believed that this new Islamic empire should not be run from decadent palaces in Syria, but rather from Mecca and Medina, the lands of the Hejaz where the faith had originated. And he was far from alone among the elites of Mecca and Medina in thinking that. Realizing that his position was weakening, Yazid invited the nobles of Medina to come to Damascus to confirm his office. But like his murder of Hussein, this ended up backfiring on him. Yazid had been born in Syria while his father Muawiyah was the governor. He had spent his whole life in the cosmopolitan lands of the north, at ease with Roman and Persian culture, at home in the luxurious Umayyad palaces. He was a product of this new Islamic world, the one that had been created by the melding of the Prophet's faith with the state and culture of the Roman and Persian empires. Just as Ibn al-Zubayr was the product of the other, older Islamic world, the one born in the deserts of Arabia, defined by the simplicity and the starkness of the Prophet's teachings and lifestyle. And that older world and its elites were fast losing out to the new world. Remember that all of this was occurring about 60 years after Muhammad's death. The very few people who had known him were very old now, and the younger generations were both awash with astounding wealth, wealth that their fathers and grandfathers in the old days would have found unimaginable. The Muslim conquest had occurred so quickly and reached so far that the younger people grew up in a vastly different world. But this led many of them to feel that something had been lost, the pure, simple faith of the messenger and his companions, the caliphs who lived in mud huts. After 20 years of Umayyad rule, though incredibly successful, a need to return to the ways of the Prophet and his companions was deeply felt by many. So Yazid hosted these Medinan elites in his sumptuous palaces, full of wine, music, dancing, and feasts. He attempted to impress them and dazzle them with art, women, sports, and hunting, and to bribe them with fabulous riches and gifts. But for the elites of Medina, all of this showed just how decadent, just how foreign the court of Damascus had become. They returned to Medina with tales of debauchery, debauchery that essentially amounted to treason and apostasy. How could this man have killed Hussein, the prophet's grandson who had lived with them in Medina as a simple scholar? Well, because he wasn't really a Muslim. Support for Ibn al-Zubayr spread across Arabia, fed and inflamed by resentment of the Arab peninsula against this new generation moving the center of power north to Syria. Whereupon Yazid ordered the governor of Medina to arrest him. Ibn al-Zubayr moved to Mecca and now openly proclaimed that he did not and would not recognize Yazid's claim to the caliphate. Yazid realized he had to put this revolt down quickly. The alternative was seeing his authority fatally undermined. So in 683, Yazid assembled an army in Syria and put it under the great general Muslim Ibn Uqba, who marched it south. 
but then Muslim Ibn Uqba died en route to Mecca, clearly a bad omen. Nevertheless, the army under his deputy, named al-Sukuni, reached Mecca and put the city to siege. Al-Sakuni began bombarding Mecca with catapults and trebuchets, during the course of which the Holy Kaaba, the direction of prayer, the center of the faith, was severely damaged. But still, Ibn al-Zubayr refused to surrender. And then, months into the siege, remarkable news arrived to both besieging army and besieged city. Yazid had died. He was only about 40 years old. Now, we're not sure how he died. As most later authors were anti-Umayyad, there are a lot of claims that he drank himself to death, but we shouldn't take that at face value. Clearly, though, Allah had decided. Ibn al-Zubayr, upon hearing the news, declared himself caliph, as was clearly the will of God. Al-Sakuni then called off the siege and reached out to Ibn al-Zubayr holed up in the holy city telling him that he would recognize him as caliph then and there if he would only agree to return with him to Syria to rule from Damascus. But Ibn al-Zubayr refused. He had not revolted against Yazid just to repeat the sins of the disfavored, sins that had clearly led Allah to punish him. Meanwhile, back in Damascus, Yazid's son Muawiyah II was put up as caliph. But he was a sickly young man and had no power, and in any event died of his illness in a couple months. The will of Allah could not be more clear. The line of Muawiyah was dead. This shocking news spread across the Muslim world. After killing the Prophet's grandson, after despoiling the Holy Kaaba, Allah finally had punished Yazid. The line of Muawiyah was dead, and a new caliph had arisen in the holy city itself, one who promised to reject the decadence of the Umayyads and return the faith to the simple and ascetic practices of the founder. City after city, town after town, province after province recognized Ibn al-Zubayr. Soon all of Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Armenia, and Egypt had recognized his caliphate. Aside from the outer fringes of the empire, only Syria, home base of the Umayyads, did not bend the knee to the new order. The support for the Umayyads was strong here, and they weren't going to give up. In early 684, Marwan ibn al-Hakam, the scion of a great and powerful Umayyad house, was declared as caliph to succeed Muawiyah II. Critically for the Umayyads, Ubaidullah, the killer of Hussein, the brutal tyrant of Iraq, remained loyal after he had been expelled from Iraq by pro-Zubayrid forces. He fled to Damascus now a tiny Umayyad island in a vast Zubayrid sea. But even in Syria, in the power vacuum after the death of Yazid and his son, Umayyad power was now limited to Damascus and its surrounding countryside. Seeing which way the winds were blowing, the governor of Damascus, after vacillating between the two sides, ultimately decided to go with the Zubayrids. The Umayyads were really now on the ropes. I mean, there's just no way they're going to pull this off, right? The Umayyads really had only one shot at this thing. They could only afford to pull together one small army, composed of tribes loyal to the Umayyads and put under Ubaidullah's command, this last army of about 13,000 men took the field. The Zubayrid army was led by the governor and met the Umayyad forces at Marj Rahit, only 27 kilometers north of Damascus, the last bastion of Umayyad power. Incredibly, though outnumbered more than 4 to 1, the Umayyads were victorious. The Zubayrid army collapsed and the governor was killed. 
After this victory, the Umayyad position in Syria was now secured. Marwan quickly reasserted Umayyad authority across the Levant. At the same time, fortunately for the Umayyads, Iraq became embroiled in revolt, in essence a multi-way conflict between the local governor, Zubayrid forces, the Kharijites, and the supporters of Ali's family, who were well along their way to becoming a religious sect, the Shia. The Shia in particular began consolidating power in Iraq and Iran under a leader named al-Muqtar, who was intent on pressing the claim of the line of Ali. This drew Ibn al-Zubayr's attention away from Syria, allowing the Umayyads to begin to consolidate their power and push back against the Zubayrids. Ultimately, the Zubayrids would be pushed out of Iraq, leaving two of the richest parts of the empire, Iraq and Syria, outside of Ibn al-Zubayr's control. The third of the rich lands of the Caliphate, Egypt, then also fell out of Zubayrid control. In 685, Marwan marched his army across Sinai and into Egypt. He had carefully laid the ground for this invasion, and was able to secure the defection of most of the nobility and the military establishment in the province. Ibn al-Zubayr was now locked up in the Hejaz. Within merely a year, he and his supporters had lost all of the richest and most productive regions of the Caliphate. The great centers of wealth were now in the hands of his enemies. But then, a mere six months into his reign as caliph, Marwan died. He was succeeded by his son, the great Abd al-Malik. Abd al-Malik was born in 644 in the Hejaz, and therefore was one of the first generations of Muslims to come to power without knowing the messenger himself. His mother was a daughter of Muawiyah, while his father was from a rich and powerful Umayyad family, who had only converted after Muhammad's conquest of Mecca. Abd al-Malik held both administrative and military positions under Muawiyah, and though he served with bravery in the armies, it became apparent that his real talent was as an organizer, as a bureaucrat. He served as a scribe and as a secretary under Muawiyah, traveling often between Damascus and the Hejaz. His talents for organization led to his rise through the new Umayyad bureaucracy, though he never became close to Muawiyah personally. After Muawiyah's death, he was an important advisor to his father during his brief reign. All of this, his great skill as a statesman and his reputation for bravery in battle, prepared Abd al-Malik well to take over when his father died. Perhaps most importantly, Abd al-Malik lacked the cruelty that characterized both Muawiyah and Yazid. He was not a man who tried to humiliate and debase his enemies, but rather someone who sought to co-opt them. Abd al-Malik would go on to be the most celebrated Umayyad caliph, the one who would bring the Umayyad caliphate to the zenith of its power and prosperity. But he started his reign as just one power among many in this second civil war, this second fitna. Ibn al-Zubayr was still in power in the Hejaz, and the Shia leader al-Muqtar had expanded his power in Iraq and Iran. Abd al-Malik decided he had to secure control over Iraq, which had fallen into a confusing mess, controlled in part by the Kharijites, partly by Umayyads, partly by Zubayrids, and partly by the Shia. He would then control all of the three richest and most productive lands of the Caliphate, from which he could deal with both Ibn al-Zubayr and al-Muqtar but he faced initial difficulties. His armies in Iraq were routed by a much smaller Shia force in 686. The Shia themselves were then soon defeated that same year by the Zubayrids, during which battle al-Muqtar himself was killed. 
This defeat in Iraq led to revolts in northern and eastern Syria, all supported by Ibn al-Zubaydah and made up of pro-Zubaydah Arab tribes. Additionally, the Byzantines joined the fray. Having been holed up in Anatolia, clinging to the mountains and defying repeated invasions and raids, the Byzantines, led by Emperor Justin, decided that the time was finally ripe for a counterattack. They began pressing on Umayyad forces across the frontier zone, launching lightning-fast raids across the region, going so far as to briefly reconquer Antioch. This was the nadir of Abd al-Malik's fortunes. By 689, he was facing both Byzantine invasions and Arab revolts. Iraq was nowhere close to being conquered, and Ibn al-Zubayr had regained much of this vital province. The second fitna showed no signs of stopping, and Abd al-Malik was clearly losing. But Abd al-Malik skillfully extracted himself from this dire situation. He swallowed his pride and negotiated a ceasefire with the Byzantines, pursuant to which the Umayyads would pay a daily tribute of a thousand gold coins. This stretched his treasury. He was forced to dip into the savings accrued under Muawiyah's reign and the revenues of Egypt to secure his northern border. But he had his peace treaty finally. He then used this peace to move forces to eastern Syria, where he was able to defeat his enemies. But his goal was not to crush them, but to win them over. After securing several victories, he was able to negotiate with pro-Zubaydah tribes and get them to switch sides. With his rule in Syria thus consolidated, Abd al-Malik turned his attention to Iraq. His armies fanned out across northern Iraq, bringing Zubayrid, Shia, and Karajite forces to battle, and slowly but surely consolidating Umayyad control. Ibn al-Zubayr knew he had to hold Iraq, so he assembled a large army to defeat the Umayyads and assert his control of the vital province. In 691, Abd al-Malik personally led his troops against the main Zubayrid army in Iraq. They met at Maskin, just north of modern-day Baghdad, which had not yet been built. The Zubayrids started off doing well, driving the Umayyad vanguard off the field and forcing a retreat. But as the center of the Umayyad line retreated, Abd al-Malik ordered in his right wing in a flanking maneuver, which crushed the Zubayrids. The defeat was total, and the Zubayrid commanding generals were slain. But Abd al-Malik was not interested in crushing his enemies, but in co-opting them. He recognized that in civil wars, your enemy is in fact your brother, and therefore you must, in some way, come to an understanding with them. He was lenient in victory, promising to protect the families of the defeated. Indeed, in time, the son of one of the commanders defeated at Maskin would go on to become a great Umayyad general, and would lead the assault into Central Asia that we will discuss next episode. The Battle of Maskin marked the end of Ibn al-Zubayr. Iraq was lost, and now Syria, Egypt, and Iraq, the three great rich provinces, were all in Umayyad hands. Most importantly, Abd al-Malik's leniency, his desire to forgive and forget, allowed him to effectively use this victory. He was able to convince the Arab elites to switch sides and join him. Abd al-Malik was now able to finish off Ibn al-Zubayr and end the second fitna. In 692, he assembled an army in Iraq and sent it off to the Hejaz. The army fought numerous small encounters with Zubayrid forces before reaching Mecca. There, they put the holy city under siege. For a second time, Umayyad catapults bombarded the holy city, even damaging the Kaaba. But the verdict of Allah was different this time. Knowing that Abd al-Malik was offering generous pardons and seeing no way to achieve victory, virtually all of Ibn al-Zubayr's troops deserted him including his very own sons. 
Abd al-Malik was good to his word, and all were pardoned. He insisted only on the death of Ibn al-Zubayr, who was far too dangerous to be left alive. Finally, in March 692, Umayyad forces stormed the Kaaba, seized Ibn al-Zubayr, and killed him. The Second Civil War, the Second Fitna, was over. It would take years to fully reconsolidate his rule, but Abd al-Malik was now the only caliph. He would accomplish this reknitting of the caliphate in the same way that he had won the war, through reconciliation, not vengeance. Though there would be rebellions that had to be put down, by and large, from Iraq to the Hejaz to North Africa, Abd al-Malik used honey, not vinegar, to consolidate his rule. He would also use his great talent for organization, for state-building, to take what Muawiyah had started and run with it. Under his reign, the structures of the Umayyad Caliphate came into their own. And on the frontiers, the wars to expand the faith would restart. After decades of discord, decades of fitna, decades of Muslims killing Muslims, the great Arab war machine would again be turned outwards. Incredibly, unbelievably, the civil wars had not broken the ability of the armies of Islam to conquer. From Spain to the Caucasus, from Anatolia to the Indus, the armies of Islam again began marching forward. And critically for our story, this included marching across the Amudarya, that is the river Oxus, and into Central Asia, into the land of the Turks. So next time, we will pick back up with the Turks as they face their greatest enemy yet.